Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs. No deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and t shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Hello and welcome back to the Prospect Interview we speak to the brightest minds and talk about the ideas that matter in politics, arts and society. I'm Tom Clark, a contributing editor now at Prospect magazine, and today I'm joined by the renowned political scientist, writer and podcaster extraordinaire Brian Klass, who spent considerable time talking to the many wrong'uns who wield power and trying to figure out whether power has warped them or whether they were drawn to it because they were bad in the first place. I think he's been trying to find out too why the rest of us so often collectively acquiesced in being bossed about by rulers who don't care much about us and figuring out, most importantly, what we can do to keep them in their place. His answers to all this are in uh, his new book, Corruptible, which is out with Scribner at the very start of the new year. Brian, we're going to get on to all these important arguments in a minute. But first, I was very struck by one bad ruler who didn't make your index, even though I know you spent a long time worrying about him, namely Donald Trump. How far does the Trump story bear out your themes and why isn't he in there? Yeah, thank you. It was a it was a great uh, it was a deliberate decision not to include Donald Trump in the book. There's a few reasons for that. One is because there's been endless commentary on Donald Trump uh, and that he's well known as an example. And the other is that I wanted to actually make this bigger than one individual, one moment in time. These questions are, in my view, timeless. And so I have stuff in the book dating back to ancient Greece. I have it to modern politics. And I think to to tie it all to somebody who's such a polarizing, larger-than-life figure uh, ends up, I think, changing the conversation in ways that are counterproductive. Now, Trump does, I think— fulfill some of the aspects of my argument. One of them, by the way, I have a a section about something called the dark triad. And the dark triad involves personality traits, three of them, as you might guess, of Machiavellianism, narcissism, and psychopathy. Now, I can't say whether Donald Trump is a psychopath, but I think it's pretty fair to say he is certainly Machiavellian and certainly a narcissist. And one of the things that he bears out is that those people are disproportionately good at seeking and getting power but actually quite dysfunctional when they achieve it. And that's one of, the, uh, one of the aspects that I think we need to think more about is who gets power and who seeks power. We often focus the discussion only on who's in power, and I think that's a, a crucial mistake that we're making. Yeah, I mean, you've got this lovely quote from Douglas Adams about uh, the restaurant at the end of the universe, I think it is, uh, people who want to rule are the least 
suitable to rule. You know, if you want to be a great domineering figure, then you shouldn't be trusted with the levers of power. But of course, you're going to be uh, drawn to them. But if that's the case, I mean, it's quite a bleak observation, isn't it? Because um, then we really are in trouble if it's only the wrong ones who want power in the first place. Yeah, so that's that's where I think I think you're right that it is bleak now. I think actually the book is quite optimistic on this front because what I'm arguing is I'm saying, look, power is sort of like, you know, if you went to a tryout for a high school basketball team in the United States where height is an advantage, you wouldn't expect that the students who tried out to be of average height. The, the tall kids would gravitate towards the basketball team. The same thing happens with power. Power-hungry people gravitate towards power. They self-select. Now, what that means is that you have to design systems from the bottom up with that in, in mind. And also, not only do they self-select, they're actually better at obtaining power. People who are ruthless are often very, very good at getting into positions of power and climbing the hierarchy. So what you do is you think, okay, if we have this aspect of power that's magnetic to the wrong kinds of people, how do we counteract that? Now, I have a, an example that I love in the book uh, about police. And this debate has been absolutely central in British politics recently because of some high-profile cases involving abusive police officers, in one case, a murderous police officer. And so what, what I looked at is I said, okay, I, I, I interviewed the head of the Metropolitan um, Police, pa past head of uh, Metropolitan Police HR, and also uh, various people in the United States and around the world. And all of them said the same thing to me, more or less, which was, if you happen to be an abusive, bigoted bully, the idea of walking around with a badge or in the U.S. with a gun is really appealing to those kinds of people. Now, it doesn't mean that all police officers are bad or abusive, far from, far from it. But it does mean that you have to design a system to counteract that. So I juxtapose an example from rural Georgia in the United States where the recruitment video they show involves SWAT teams in tanks throwing smoke grenades in military fatigues against New Zealand's attempt at police recruitment where they deliberately tried to counteract this by having a funny advertisement that involves policing depicted as community care, support for people who are vulnerable in the community. And in fact, what the cops are doing in the video is they're chasing this unseen perpetrator who turns out to be a border collie that's stolen, stolen a woman's purse. And at the end, it says, do you care enough to be a cop, right? In the U.S. version, it's the logo of the Punisher, who's a vigilante who tortures and kills criminals. So the depictions of how you portray power are either going to supercharge the wrong unseeking it or counteract it. And if you counteract it, you can actually get better people into positions of power. And I think that's why the, the book ends up being quite hopeful. Okay, I mean, and it's an interesting twist, isn't it, on, um, I mean, political science, your, your discipline, a lot of the time, and also in the pieces in magazines like Prospect, we worry an awful lot about, you know, the ground rules of politics, the constitutions uh, that constrain leaders. But you're really looking at it more from the point of view of psychology, different sorts of people, aren't you? And, 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 and who gets to rule rather than, in a way, that's, you're saying that's the more fundamental thing is who rather than how. Yeah, I think I think it's both. I mean, the, the germination of this book, the reason I wrote it was because I, my professional life as a political scientist, I study abusive despots, basically. And I traveled around the world for my PhD and my postdoctoral research and so on. And I interviewed former heads of state, some former despots, some people who ordered torture, awful people in positions of power in authoritarian countries. And then I started to talk about this with other people. And they would say, I recognize some of those traits, obviously at a much smaller level in you know, my local homeowners association or in mid-level management or 
coaching my t- kid's sports team, you know, the tyrant who's in charge of the football team and so on. And so what I wanted to do is I wanted to look at all angles of this. And some of them are obviously, you know, social science They're What are the constraints on people's behavior? What, you know, how do the way you set up systems and norms and punishment and oversight, how does that counteract abuse of people? And some of it is, as you say, psychological. It's why do people certainly uh, of a certain type gravitate towards power and others don't. And I think the the paradox that's central to the book is why is it that whenever I talk to anybody in society, they say, everybody I know, my friends and family, they're good people. They're decent. They would behave appropriately in power. And then you say, what do you think of the people in power? And they say, they're terrible. All of them are terrible, right? Now, (laughs) of course, there are good people in politics and business and so on. But the, the general perception is that our leaders are bad. And so this disconnect is one of the central paradoxes that I explore in the book of why do we end up with bad leaders when we think, most of us think, we're surrounded by good people. And, and that's that's really the core uh, that I try to tackle in 250 pages. And then as well, though, as this whole business of uh, like who's drawn to the flame, which moths are drawn to the flame in your phrase, um, you've got the question of how people are warped. The, um, the, the famous power corrupts all power. Uh, absolute power corrupts um absolutely do you i mean do you, do you think that is very much the case or do you think it's more that it's just sort of power reveals rather than corrupts because uh you've got these um people with your your dark triad of being uh sociopathic and um psychopathic and all the rest of it who are making it to the top yeah, so it's both, really. Um, there's a lot of evidence that power corrupts. I have a chapter in the book called Power Corrupts. And what I did, and this is sort of my approach in general, was I, I went and I interviewed people for whom this was true. So the, this story, which you know really stuck with me, involves me going to Switzerland, where I meet with a woman named Ma'anan Sheila, who used to be the right-hand woman to a cult leader, an Indian guru who settled in America, and ended up becoming the worst bioterrorist in American history because she tried to poison a thousand people in order to rig a county level election. I mean, it's, and then she tries to plot assassinations, all sorts of awful things when she was previously an art student. And so this sort of descent into this abuse and this violence was quite remarkable. It's also remarkable that when I met her, she's in charge of a care home for schizophrenics in Switzerland. And she is literally the worst bioterrorist in American history who successfully poisoned 1,000 people now taking care of vulnerable people. So it shows you an arc, right? It's the, the power was what warped her. And then she since then has been extremely caring and lovely and hasn't done anything wrong after she had her four years in jail and was uh, deported. Now, we have lots of evidence beyond this. It's not just anecdotes. So there's lots and lots of evidence that power makes people think think less about those who are, under, are underneath them in the hierarchy, care about them less. It changes their risk-taking uh, calculations. They believe that they're invincible in certain ways. So there's lots and lots of evidence. There's also, I think, a, a great study that I, I cite in the book by a guy named Dacker Keltner out in uh, Berkeley, California. And he looks at how car type changes your consideration of other people when you're about to go into a crosswalk and finds that people with really, really flashy cars and expensive cars tend to be far less likely to stop when a pedestrian is just about to go into the crosswalk compared to those who have uh, really, you know, old and junk, junky cars. And I find this, you know, in, in all sorts of settings in the animal kingdom, we have lots and lots of evidence. But I also think one of the things that we misunderstand is that we sometimes think power corrupts when actually it's about 
opportunity to do harm or people getting worse during their time in power. I have a chapter that says why it appears power corrupts. So for example, you may have a situation where you have a totally rotten person get into power. And over time, they get better at manipulating the system, gaming it, figuring out how to sort of get their way more. On paper, it would look like they became worse, when in fact, they're potentially the exact same awful person who just got better at being bad. They also have more opportunity to do harm. So you have people in positions of authority who may create more consequential damage, and that doesn't necessarily mean power corrupted them. It maybe just gave them the platform to inf inflict abuse on individuals that they would have liked to inflict otherwise, but they didn't have the ability to do so when they weren't in power. So there's a balance here. I mean, I think power attracts the wrong kind of people. I think it makes people worse. And I think that sometimes we misunderstand power. And that is why there's such a nuanced debate that I hope unfolds in the book. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, it's it's really all rooted in ideas about um human nature isn't it um and uh, you know you, you spend quite a lot of time talking about chimpanzees which are not a very heartening place to look in that they're very status obsessed and very very violent but then trying to um draw out some of the the differences um between us and and, and chimpanzees in that little bit of dna that separates us from them but leads to big differences in the brain and then you also take a very broad look at human history and say that for most of human history maybe not the bit that we've written down and know most about, but the several hundred thousand years before the, uh, before the kind of two or three thousand years where we've been writing it down, um, uh, people were pretty, um, pretty kind of uh, equal and there weren't kind of all powerful rulers in the same way. Yeah, that's right. So this, this is chapter two in the book, uh, The Evolution of Power. And this was a fascinating bit of research for me because I'm a political scientist, but I was speaking with evolutionary biologists, anthropologists, and so on, looking back at the long scope of human history, the 200,000 years, not the last 2,000. And, and what's really interesting is that most of human history involves small groups called bands, and it was designed to be egalitarian because many of the hunter-gatherers in the Stone Age, for example, were worried about uh, a usurper taking power and exploiting them. And what's really interesting is that part of the reason why we were able to break out of the sort of dominance by size aspect once we did get into the longer scale of human history is because of the way our shoulders are designed. This is quite a bizarre story, but basically our shoulders had a bit of evolutionary plastic surgery done to them, which allow us to throw objects with extreme accuracy. We're the only species that can do that. Chimpanzees can't. And as a result of that, we can use ranged weapons. And that severs the link between size and dominance that's in most of the rest of the animal kingdom. Now, that's a very, very good thing, right? Because that's why we have leaders like Angela Merkel and others in power now where it's not about physical dominance. And yet, and this is where I, I explore the world of evolutionary psychology, which is about how our brains function, our brains haven't changed that much, even though our lifestyle has changed dramatically in the last 200,000 years. Our brains are basically the same as our Stone Age ancestors' brains, and they're adapted for a lifestyle that's now out of date. So you still have certain templates in the brain that are activated by size. And so in particular, the term strongman is not an accident. We have lots of evidence to suggest that particularly during times of crisis, our brains tend to gravitate towards people who are physically larger, especially if they present themselves in the strongman mystique as the solution to the problem. Now that made sense when we were hunter-gatherers and we were starving and we needed a strong person to find food for us, but of course makes no sense now. But it explains why Vladimir Putin poses shirtless. 
It is literally to present this mystique. And it also explains why Trump's inaugural speech was was called the American Carnage speech. It depicted this dystopian crisis that he was planning to rescue us from that appealed to a certain subset of the population. So we have a lot of evidence from various studies and so on, much beyond these anecdotes that show that the, the long sweep of human history shows a particular evolution of power that still survives to this day, sometimes in a good way and sometimes in very outdated ways where we have to grapple with cognitive biases that are maladaptive for the modern world. And just where are you on on kind of hierarchy and things like that? Because you, you say that, um, you know, like these hunter-gatherer societies, you've got an admiration for this. Is it the Kung tribe that relies less on um you know lauding the people who bring bring home the bacon as it were or bring home the the, the bush meat uh and instead shame them i think uh but you also say that like you know quite orderly societies like i don't know angela merkel's germany or whatever um uh have far fewer um people dying by homicide than most societies through history so um yeah how how kind of anarchist are you in in, in all of this I'm very much not anarchist, and I will say that there's some really interesting evidence about how dangerous societies are based on hierarchy. And I think we are in advanced democracies, in consolidated democracies with lots of police systems and judiciaries and so on. We're living in the safest structures ever built for human beings uh, in terms of murder, all these other dangers and so on. Um, When you look at the distant past of hunter-gatherers, our rates of killing each other coincided roughly with that of other primates. So, you know, 2% or so of of primates murder each other, so do 2% or so of Stone Age people. The worst actually ended up being when we had hierarchies without any structures. So the the sort of Dark Ages and early Middle Ages, there was much higher levels of murder. And that was partly because people were jockeying for power in a way that they weren't necessarily when the egalitarianism, the sort of flat societies that preceded them, existed. Now we're way better than all of that. I mean, of course, there are pockets in our modern world for which, you know, this is terrible. But places like, you know, modern Britain or Germany and so on have really, really low levels of human-on-human killing. And so what I think is, is clear is that hierarchy, when it's managed well, can be an extraordinary engine of prosperity and peace. But it requires good structures. And again, I think this is the point that I'm, I'm making throughout the book is that, you know, when you had bad systems, you had bad people that would gravitate towards power and then nothing to constrain them. And I think you have to think about all of these different elements together. And right now what we have is we have reasonably good systems, but of course they're not designed to counteract power-hungry people. There's lots of constraints on people in power. I mean, the prime minister has to follow rules and so on, but we don't have, we haven't engineered systems to attract people who don't want power. And I think to make a better society, we have to think about how do we get those people who would be good, decent, and actually don't want power into positions of authority? I think we'd live in a better society still if we could do that. Okay, so it's very much not an anti-power book. It's how to how to do power better then. Um, so let's just talk then about, um, uh, you know, a series of possible things that could happen. I imagine one thing that you think probably was a good idea was um, you talk about George Washington and Cincinnatus, the idea of a, a term limit so that the, um, the the bit of the corruption that takes place whilst you're in power, the corrupting of character, there's a check on that after a certain period. Yeah, so one of the sections, the, the, the final section, as you're talking about the waiting for Cincinnatus section, 
Um, you know, it, it draws on some other lessons throughout the book. And one of them that I talk about, and this is also applicable to term limits and so on, is the power of rotation. So rotation is something that puts people who are in positions of authority sort of into an uncomfortable world where they don't feel you know, confident that the people around them will help them collude in an abusive way. Again, let's return to the police for this. So the Metropolitan Police try to rotate partners through because they've found through various studies of policing that the longer partners are together without a change, the more comfortable they become with each other. And if you've got one rotten cop, the other one will often sort of go along with it. And so you find this through banking, for example, where they forcibly rotate people to take some some of the banks force forcibly rotate people and, and force them to take a holiday for two weeks consecutively in a year to expose any embezzlement that's happening. Because again, all of a sudden you've got a new person in and if everybody's colluding with the the, the embezzler, all of a sudden the new person will expose this. And we have we have experimental evidence to show this too, where if you have people do this, whether it's in China or Germany, um, if you put them through a simulation where they can cheat to win, if you rotate partners, the abuse rates drop. Now, this is just one lesson, right? I have 10 lessons in the book that I talk about of ways to deter bad behavior for those in power. But what's what's remarkable to me about this is it's so simple, right? The, 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 thing, the thing that was striking to me as I wrote this book and I researched it is that we have lots of really good evidence of how we can get better people into power and make bad people behave better once they're in power, and we don't try. You know, th these things are not difficult to do and they're not rocket science. And the systems can counteract some of those impulses that I talk about in psychology. So I'm still very hopeful. You know, I, it, I, I've met some of the worst of humanity, but I have a very, very good view of what the average human is like. And I think we just need to find a better way of getting those people in charge and getting, getting rid of the ones who are not supposed to be there. OK, let's just talk for a minute about the UK. I mean, you've already spoken about Trump and I know you've, you've, you've worked in, in the UK as well as the US. Uh, now, Boris Johnson is very much a leader who, you know, oh, is he a leader who looks like a leader? He's certainly a, a kind of, um, you know, man in his 50s in a, in a, in a tie, even if it's a bit um, uh, scrumpled. Um, but he's also someone who's kind of closed down Parliament. And um, uh, so what should people in Britain do if they either want... Um, Prime Ministers who've not all been to the same school, and Boris Johnson is like one third of all the British Prime Ministers ever and that he's been to this one school, Eton. And then if they want um, someone like Boris Johnson to, to play it straighter, if we do have someone like Boris Johnson, uh, how do we get him to not do things like shut down Parliament? Because it happens to suit him. Yeah, so there's, there's sort of two things that I think are applicable here. One is this idea of why we're drawn to certain leaders. And there's plenty of people who are critics of Boris Johnson who just say, I just don't see it. I don't understand why he's so invincible to all the criticism, to all the corruption scandals, to all the negative outcomes of COVID and so on. And one of the things that I, I talk about at length in the book is why we're drawn to certain leaders is often irrational. It's often happening at a subconscious level. And so there's a, an amazing study I found that was it was published in one of the top research journals in science that has uh, children look at two faces and they're told, pick a face to be the leader or the captain of your ship in this imaginary computer simulation. And what was remarkable is they didn't know, the kids weren't told that the two faces weren't random. One was the winner of a French election and one was the runner up of that same election. But overwhelmingly, the kids picked the winner 
to captain their ship, suggesting that there's something about a face even that seems to be leader-like to us. Also seems to suggest that the political consulting industry is probably overvalued because some of these things are being uh, assessed at face level, face value, uh, rather than through some you know glitzy ads and so on. And so Boris Johnson is magnetic to certain kinds of people. They find him charming. He's invincible politically because they just like him and they can't explain why. And then I think, so, okay, he's in power. How do you deal with it? Well, one of the things that I talk about is how oversight is crucial here. And I think that this is something where, you know, the, the British press does a pretty good job, actually, of holding him accountable. But it is really, really, impo- really, really important to have extreme oversight of, of politicians in these situations. And also, I think this is one thing that's unfortunate about the modern political world, is to make the politicians see the consequences of their choices, to make sure they feel what I call the weight of responsibility. And, and I talked, another connection with British politics that I talked about in the book is I interviewed Tony Blair about this um, as part of the book. And I asked him about the letters of last resort, the letters to the submarine captains uh, of the Trident submarines and how it weighed on him. And he said it didn't weigh on him that much because it was the late 1990s and so on. But he did talk, and he didn't worry about nuclear war, but he did talk about how for him personally, and you know maybe he was just saying this to me, but for him personally, it was crucial to talk to ordinary people who were affected by his policies. Now, whether you like or hate Tony Blair, I think that's an important insight. And maybe, again, maybe he was lying about this, but I think it is true that when politicians are forced to confront real people who are affected by their decisions, they start to develop a a self-reflection, especially if they're not psychopaths, that causes them to behave better. And so one of the things that I think it's very simple again, but is building these in, ensure that there are forums in which Boris Johnson is confronted by people who disagree with him. Make that part of the system. Now, I think that's great that the prime minister's questions exist because we don't have that in the United States. And I think it's a great area, area of accountability. But something like that with ordinary people would be fantastic. You know, and I think that's something that would be um, also worth considering is this idea I talk about in the book of sortition, which is a random allocation of people like jury duty to a citizen assembly that would make parallel decisions to parliament, forcing parliament to explain why they diverge from the citizen assembly. So if the question is, should we put masks back into shops or should we you know, shut down the economy for this period of time, the citizen assembly would debate it, randomly allocate it. They would agree on something. And where they diverged, you would ask the politicians, why did you come up with a different opinion? And I think these sorts of things, the accountability angles are so crucial when we get people in power who may not think as reflectively as we would like or may not behave as well as we would hope. Yeah, I mean, and I, I'm interested, though, that you you step back uh, from like um, the final um, step of that argument and say, actually, you know, we entrust juries, randomly chosen juries, with really important thing, like whether someone's going to prison for 20 years. Um, why not? Why do you um, hang on to elections, given that such atypical characters are likely to do well in elections, as having the final say, rather than rather than saying, like um, I think ancient Athens did in in some circumstances, letting those randomly chosen jurors uh, make the call? Yeah, it's a great question. I grapple with this, and and the reason that I ended up uh, arguing for an oversight or advisory role rather than being our politicians instead, is because I do actually think that politicians develop skills and expertise that help them. I, I think a random allocation of citizens can't possibly understand the minutia of education or court or nuclear test ban treaty policy 
the same way that politicians who carve out that level of expertise for a career can. Now, it's not to say that the politicians have unique insights. It's just that they spend a lot of time thinking about these problems. And a citizen assembly, if you're going to have rotation, as I suggest we should, would probably sit for a year. So, you know, if if for a year there's a, you know you have a, a person who's in a totally different profession trying to become an expert on epidemiology, climate change, you know, Iran's nuclear deal and so on, I just don't think that those people can become specialists the same way that politics as a vocation can. What's the problem though is that people who have to win elections or placate donors or, you know, listen to lobbyists if they are doing policymaking for those reasons, the Citizens' Assembly will expose that. Because any time that a politician is doing something that the experts or advice or advice, you know, scientists say is a bad idea, and the citizens come up with a totally different approach, there's a gulf there. And it provides an opening to journalists to say, you know, when we when we randomly allocated 650 citizens of this country to ask them what they would do on this problem, they came up with a very different answer explain why yours diverges. Now, some of the time, there might be a good reason. If it's a nuclear test ban treaty, there might be great reasons. But for other stuff, you'd have to say, well, you know what? Actually, this is what the sort of average person thinks about this. We should take it seriously. And it would provide, as I say, an exposure of when you are, for example, providing a contract without a bid to somebody that you met at a party. And I think that's the sort of thing where a citizen's assembly probably would have come up with very different suggestions of who to provide contracts to during the COVID pandemic and would have exposed some of the aspects that I think we would all find quite unsavory. Yeah, I mean, it's been heartening on exactly that sort of territory. Um, I don't know if you saw it over there, but we've had a big scandal in the last month or so about um, uh, paid lobbying over here and uh, Boris Johnson trying to clear one of his friends without a proper process and the whole thing's collapsed and we might end up with rather stricter rules than we had before as a result. So um, certainly um, new channels for the, for the people to have their say sounds like a, a good idea. But as well as that kind of um, uh, whole business about accountability, um, like I say, I think that the real heart of the book is this thing about getting different sorts of people in there in the first place. So if you were running a local political party um, or, uh, you know, a region like the Yorkshire region of the Labour Party or the Conservative Party or, or whatever it is, um, what would you do? What steps would you take to try and ensure that you get, um, you know, uh, the right sorts of people coming forward, more, more varied people and less self-serving people? Yeah, it's a great question. So I think one of the things you have to do is, first off, the, the party has to be proactive about this. It has to recruit people. Because what's happening quite often in politics and business and so on is you wait for people to put themselves forward. So what you want to do is you want to actually counteract that by seeking people out who don't want to be politicians. <laughs> they have no desire to do this and convince them. And to convince them, you also have to have some reforms that make power palatable to normal, decent people. Because I think, you know, I have conversations with people all the time where they say, you know, I was interested in running for the local council or, you know, doing my bit in public service. And then I thought about what it would mean. And it would mean harassment by random people trying to find out who my family was or, you know, the, the, the scrutiny of every possible aspect of my life, journalists digging through my past and so on. And I think we have to have a balance. I think for the prime minister, that makes complete sense. I think for MPs, it makes complete sense. But I think we, we also need to understand that if we want good and decent people to be willing to serve their communities, we have to accept 
that there are some elements of power that are simply not attractive to the ordinary people. And that means what you do is you roll out a red carpet to the people who think, all right, there are downsides, but the big upside is I get to be in power. I get to call the shots and abuse other people, or I get to call the shots and, and feel great about the, the aspect of fame or power I have. You want people who are universally opposed to those things and are grudgingly accepting public service. I think those are the kinds of people that will do their best in, in, in those jobs. So it's about proactively recruiting and also about reforming systems such that power becomes more attractive to those who don't want power for the sake of power. Okay, I think that's all we've got time for. Um, thanks very much to Brian for joining us. His book, Corruptible, Who Gets Power and How It Changes Us, is out with Scribner in the UK early in January. Um, thanks all of you for listening. Our producer is Sarah Collins. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please do leave us a rating or a review. Uh, goodbye, stay safe, and listen out for another Prospect podcast next week, which is also the week in which a new look Prospect magazine under Alan Rusbridge's editorship hits the shelves. So be sure to tune back in and watch out. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, stamps.com is the ultimate no brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with Code Program for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code Program.